Paul? Hey, Paul, I'm going to pull this down a little bit. See, I spared you that horrible sound first thing in the morning. Uh, good morning, everybody. I uh, want to invite the children uh, to our children's church. If you go to the back door, your teacher will meet you. Just a setting for children to eat, learn the scriptures in a, a more age-appropriate place. So, um, And before we look into the scriptures this morning, let me uh, open us in a word of prayer. Lord, we, uh, we just sang about your covenant, your oath, your blood, and how they support us in the overwhelming flood that comes upon us. And Lord, we know that life is full of troubles, ups and downs, happy times and sad, and in the midst of it all, the anchor holds within the veil. In the holy place of holies, our anchor is firmly attached there, and we to him. And so we thank you that you hold us firm no matter what comes our way. Um, and thank you for giving us words to sing that, that convey that truth so beautifully. Uh, you're, you're gracious to your church, and we're grateful for that. Father, I want to pray for our uh, friend church in Palmdale, Berean Fellowship, uh, Pastor Darrell, as he's preaching this morning. I pray that you would fill his words with your intent and that it would feed his flock, that his people would hear your words clearly and understand them, that they might sink into their hearts, that they would put their hope in the trust that they have in Christ and obey you more fully and follow closely after you. And Father, I pray for their leadership development program that you would use that to, um, to build up uh, the, the leadership of uh, Brian Fellowship to strengthen them and prepare them for the mission that you've called them to. And Lord, now as we look to your word, we pray that you would show us what you mean here. Uh, some of these words are very difficult. Some of them are hard to understand. And yet we know that we have the power of the Spirit to, to show us and lead us into truth. So that's what we're counting on this morning. Holy Spirit, come and lead us into truth. We ask these things in Christ's name for his glory. Amen. So we're finishing kind of a cycle of parables now. It's coming to an end with uh, another famous one. You remember a couple of weeks ago we did the uh, prodigal son. That was a real famous parable. Lazarus and the rich man's another famous one. Uh, as we've been putting this together, there's just this recurring theme that's been coming through these, and that's the idea that people are more important than stuff, than money, than wealth, than possessions. People are more, that's what counts. And so last week when we saw that parable of the dishonest steward, the steward who started cheating his boss in order to win favor, um, what we saw there was this promise that Jesus said, use your wealth, use your possessions, your power, your influence to gain friends who will welcome you into heaven. So that was kind of how he ended it, was this promise of heaven. But this week we get the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. It's really the opposite side of the same coin. It's the bad news of what happens when you don't use your riches that way. And if I was the author of this, I would have butted these two parables right up against each other. They just seem to fit so well together. And yet, for some reason, Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, snuck three things in between them. And they don't seem to fit. When Ron read that, did that just sound out of place? Like, all of a sudden, divorce drops in out of nowhere. I was like, what on earth is going on there? Well, actually... Um, Luke knew exactly what he was doing, probably because the Holy Spirit led him to do it, but also because 
um, he, he's recording these things that Jesus said. He's setting us up for the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. There's a few things that we need to get first. So though it seems out of place to have these three sayings in the middle of it, as we go through this, and especially once we get to the end of the parable, I hope to, see, I hope to show you that makes perfect sense. It, it really explains why Luke put this together. And it really does draw his teaching for the last few weeks together on this particular topic. So what we're going to look at this morning is those three intermediate steps that Luke gives us. And then we'll take a look at the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. And we'll see how that all applies to us. So the first part is Jesus has just finished teaching about the dishonest steward. He's just completed explaining this dishonest steward used money looking towards the future, knowing that money was going to fail him, and he planned ahead. He said, I'm going to win friends. And, and Jesus admonishes us, don't rip people off, but don't put your hope in money. Use it to prepare for the future. The Pharisees' response is not particularly good. Luke says, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard these things, and they ridiculed him. So the Pharisees are looking at Jesus, and they ridicule him. The, the Greek word there is turn their nose up at him. They, they, they said what he's saying stinks. And so they're, they're raising their nose at him to, to kind of scoff. Because the way the Pharisees understood it was, if God loves you, he gives you lots of stuff. So those poor people, God must be really mad at them. They must have done something wrong. And, and so when Jesus comes along and says, no, God loves poor people, and you should give your stuff away and become like them, to the Pharisees, that's utter nonsense. And they turn their nose up at his teaching. They don't want to hear it. And so Jesus looks at them and he says, you are those who justify yourself before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in God's sight. So he looks to the Pharisees and he says, what you think you accumulate for yourself to show how great you are, those things that you're putting your hope in, your wealth and your power and your, your long flowing robes and your phylacteries and your, your uh, long prayers in the public, he says those are an abomination to God. And funnily enough, that word for abomination is a bad smell. So you Pharisees, you're turning your nose up at me. I want you to know that what you're doing stinks to God. It is an affront to him. It is an offensive odor in his face. So those things that you're clinging to that you think are going to justify yourself, going to make you uh, somebody that people are going to look up to and or admire and think great things of, those stink before God. They reek. So that's, that's the kind of um, framework that Jesus starts it out in. So then the next thing he says is he says this curious thing. It doesn't, again, it doesn't seem to fit. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. So why does he bring up the law and the prophets at this point? It, it, the, the Pharisees have no problem with the law and the prophets. As a matter of fact, they think they've got the law ironed out, nailed down. We have got it figured out. So why does Jesus throw the law and the prophets in their face? Well, first of all, I think he brings it up because what's the greatest commandment? Do you remember the greatest commandment? Jesus was asked that. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And what's the second? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the, the law is all summed up. It comes together in this concept of love, love for God and love for your neighbor. What has Jesus been hammering on for the last four weeks? People are more important than stuff. 
They're, they're more important than the things you're going to accumulate. Just last week, Jesus said, win friends who will greet you when you get to heaven. And last week I said, heaven is a place of friendship. It's a place of relationship. We don't go to heaven, check into our, our uh, mansion that God's provided for us there, and never see anybody else. We go to heaven and we're with a multitude that can't be counted. So what is the center? What's the center most important thing in heaven? If, if it's not there, you don't have heaven. It's God. So we go to heaven and we see God and we worship and admire him. And we have an entire eternity to spend looking at God and going, I had no idea he did that. I had no idea he was like that. How magnificent is he? What a wonderful thing to see. And you have an eternity to unpack everything he is and everything he's done. And it's thrilling every moment. It doesn't get any worse. When you go see a movie, you go see a really great movie. And at the end of the film, you walk out and go, that was just wonderful. But if it went another half an hour, it probably would have been lame, right? Yeah, it ended right about the right time. It was starting to press it at the end. Imagine that feeling of elation of saying, this is great, and it never diminishing, it never getting any worse. So the law and the prophets are saying, you shall love the Lord your God. You'll look to him and find him to be delightful. But you're not there alone, are you? Jesus has already told us, bring friends. You want to bring friends to heaven with you. Why is that? Because when you see something you absolutely delight in, what is the first thing you do? Turn to the person next to you, elbow them, and go, did you see that? You're, you're driving home at night, and a shooting star jets across the sky. Do you just sit there and go, hmm? Or do you elbow the person in the seat next to you and go, did you see what that was? That was magnificent. So why do we want to go to heaven and bring people with us, bring uh, as many people with us as we can? Why are we commanded to love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself? Because we get to heaven, we delight in God, and then we magnify that by looking to the person next to you and going, did you know that about God? Did you know he did that? Did you know he was that magnificent? And the person next to you goes, I had no idea. Did you see what this, and, and it multiplies that joy. It fills that joy as you delight in who God is and you share it. So why is the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind? Because there's nothing that's going to entertain you. There's nothing that's going to satisfy you. There's nothing that will capture your attention for eternity except for him. Anything else, eventually, you'll get tired of. And why are you commanded to love your neighbor as yourself? Because you're going to spend an eternity in heaven with them, and you're going to both be celebrating together. Look at what he's like. Isn't that fantastic? So when Jesus brings up the law and the prophets, he's got in mind the greatest commandments, which is love and people. So you Pharisees, in stark contrast, you Pharisees are putting on these external things that don't include any love. It's, it's riches, it's power, it's authority, it's status. It's all about you. And what did the law and the prophets tell you? Love. Love God and love people. You're not doing it. That's the problem. So there's a couple of things in here that he says that are a little bit odd. He says, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached. Does that mean that at John the Baptist's arrival, the law and the prophets are done. They're over with. It can't mean that. It's impossible because the very next thing Jesus says is, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than one little piece of the law to go away. So what does he mean when he says the law and the prophets were until John? What's he talking about there? Well, what I think he's getting at is he's saying, and we'll see this at the end in the parable, the law and the prophets have been telling you what the kingdom of God is going to look like. 
They have been proclaiming to you what the kingdom is going to look like, but they've been saying it in shadows and shapes and, and figures until John the Baptist. And what does John the Baptist do? John the Baptist stands in the wilderness and goes, Behold the Lamb of God. He points to the fulfillment of all of that. So all of those things are leading up to John. John stands in this cusp between the old and the new, and he's pointing the way towards Jesus and saying, there he is. So I think that's what he's getting at when he says the law and the prophets were until John, and now the good news of the kingdom is preached. Now the king has come. Jesus has arrived. And so that's who he's pointing to. Now the hard part. And everyone forces his way into it. What does that mean? First of all, if you look in different translations, you'll find different ways that that's handled. Uh, everyone forces their way into it. Men enter it violently. Um, there are, people are urged to enter the kingdom. There's a, a handful of different ways to translate that. The word is kind of nebulous. Um, it has to do with, with being pushed forcefully. Uh, the word behind it had to do with like a strong wind pushing you. And so um, does this mean that people are pushed into the kingdom? Does it mean that people have to force their way into the kingdom? What is that all about? Well, people take different tacks on it. I got really frustrated reading all the different ad, um, interpretations. So I, what I did is I finally got to a point where I went, time out. This is in a context. Luke wrote this in the context of saying other things. Matthew says the same thing, but he says it slightly differently. Luke says it in this particular way, in this particular setting, for a particular purpose. So I backed up and I said, what is the kingdom of God? What is going on with the kingdom of God here? And so what you find is uh, way back in, in um, chapter 13, Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and he said, you're invited to the feast and you're not coming in, but you're going to look into the kingdom and what you're going to see is Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the prophets reclining at table in the kingdom and you're going to see you're going to look in there and you're going to see people from the east west north and south reclining at table in the kingdom so that's kind of the beginning of the context of what he's talking about here then in verse or in chapter 14 he tells this parable about a man giving a wedding feast he gives this great feast and he sends his servants out and says you guys now's the time go get the invited guests and one by one, the invited guests say, well, you know, I, I just got married, and so I'm going to go be with my, please excuse me. Or I just bought a field. I need to go out and check out the field, so please excuse me. Or I just got five oxen, and, and I need to go test them, so please excuse me. And the, the, the owner, or the, the master of the house gets very frustrated with him. He gets very angry, and he says, go out into the streets and the byways and draw people into my feast. And so his servants go into the streets and the byways and they grab people and pull them in. And they said, Master, there's still seats. And he says, okay, well, you go out into the highways and the byways, the highways and the hedges. You go out there and you find people and you bring them in. You compel them to come into my feast until it's full. Because I'm telling you, these folks are going to be there and those I've invited are not coming. And what I said at that time was the, the going into the streets and the byways was Jesus going out to the wrong sorts of people, the poor, the people who were sick, the people who were thronging to him were the ones who were the ones who probably shouldn't be at the feast. The Pharisees and the scribes, they were the ones who were invited and they refused to come. So Jesus says, I'm going to grab those. And then there's still room. And so Jesus tells him to go out into the highways and the hedges. What I said he was saying there was essentially what he saw in the previous chapter, which is 
You go out into the nations and you bring people from the east, west, north, and south, and you compel them to come into this kingdom feast. So I think that's where he's going with this, is he's saying that's what the kingdom is, is I'm bringing people in from all over the place. And so when we get to this part where he talks about the kingdom again, he says they are compelled to come in. They are pushed in. And what he's looking at is I think he's looking to the way we go out to the nations. We go out to the whole world and we tell people, come into the feast. Compel them to come into the feast. You're invited. Come and join us. So the force of it is that gospel call that's pushing people into the kingdom who the scribes and Pharisees would go, there's no way. Gentiles are excluded. They're not supposed to be here. And Jesus is saying, no, they're being pushed into the kingdom. They're rushing into the kingdom. So I think that's what he's getting at with the, the, uh, the, the force idea. This, they enter violently. To be honest, if you've heard another interpretation and it works for you, go with it. <laughs> it, it is, it, honestly, when you look at the different translations, there's about eight different ways to handle this. It just seems to me that in context, that's the best way to do it. So the first part is, what you put on to make yourself look good in front of other people is a stench in God's nose. The second part is the law and the prophets have been telling you exactly what it means to be part of the kingdom, to love God and to love people. And the people that are coming in will be the people you least expect. And then Jesus says that not one jot of the law will go away. There's not going to be one piece of the law that disappears. Can you put up the next slide real quick? What he's getting at is the littlest, tiniest stroke of the law. So these, these are Hebrew letters that are up here. And if you look, Beit and Kaf, can you see the difference between them? Just a subtle little pen stroke at the bottom corner. The next one, He, Heth, and Tau, they're very close. The difference between Heth and He is just the, the leg gets continued up and closes that little gap. And Tau, it just has that little leg that sticks out on the corner. And then Dalit and Resh, they're so close. It's just that little piece that sticks out. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about. He says those little bits that are on there, not one little tiny stroke, just a bump of a pen, none of that is going to go away. The law is not going to change. It remains unchanged. Why? Because the law has always been love the Lord your God with all your soul, strength, mind, and heart and love your neighbor as yourself. So that's what he's been getting at, is, is these little tiny things. In Greek, the word there is little horn for jot. So it's that little horn, that little bit that sticks out there. That's what he's been telling us, is that is never going to go away. It's never going to change for you. So the law is going to abide. Even in the new covenant, the law is going to abide the same way. And that's not just something that, um, that I you know, kind of made up and thought was pretty clever. In Romans 13, Paul says as much. He, he tells us this. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 13, 9 and 10. He says, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covenant, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So the law doesn't go away. He, he lists the second half of the Ten Commandments, and he says any of that, it's all summed up in the idea, love your neighbor as yourself. And love is fulfillment of the law. So how are we to fulfill the law? It, it doesn't disappear. We fulfill it by loving God and loving our neighbor. That's where Jesus is going with that. 
So now the next hard part. Um, he then says, apparently out of nowhere, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Um, where'd that come from? <laughs> Why drop that bombshell on us? They're not talking about marrying and divorcing. Jesus, uh, did you lose track of where we're at here? Um, what he's getting at here is, first of all, I want to say that is not the entirety of the New Testament teaching on divorce. That is not the sum, all that it has to say about the Christian understanding of divorce and remarriage. Jesus says it in a very harsh, very clear-cut way on purpose, to be arresting, to be shocking. Um, at the time, the Pharisees had a couple of different ideas on divorce. One was fairly, fairly strict. The only reason you could ever divorce anybody was for infidelity. And the other one was, hey, you can write your wife off any minute. If she cooks a bad dinner, you can pitch her. So there was these varieties of ideas on how and why you could divorce. So what Jesus does here is he takes up the law again and he applies it to them. And he says, the law abides so that even if you do this, you're committing adultery. Adultery remains wrong. It remains an offense to God. It's as stinky as your clothes that you're trying to put on before him. So why divorce? Why use divorce as that vehicle? I think what he's getting at by bringing up divorce is I think he's trying to make the point, if you treat your covenant partner, your wife, in a way that you go, I don't like what you made for dinner, you're out, aren't you doing exactly what Jesus has been complaining about? Treating people as if they are a servant of yours? You're only in this household for me, and if you cease to please me, you're out. Is that how Jesus teach? Is that how God treated Israel? Is that how He loved Israel? He put up with Israel's infidelity. He called her a whore who was going after the nations, chasing after false gods. And He said, "Yet I love you, and yet I pursue you. I'm going to put a hedgerow up in front of you to slow you down from your 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 desire to run after false gods. I'm going to put thorns around you to stop you going in that way." Did He say, "Hey, I don't like you this afternoon. You're out." So that's the picture that Jesus is painting, is if you treat people like that, if you just throw people away when they cease to serve you, what a horrible picture that is. And it ties back to that idea that you stink. You are an offense to God. He knows your heart. He understands what's going on inside you. When you send that wife away and say you don't want her anymore, he understands exactly what you're doing. It's all about you. You violated the law. You violated all of that. So those three things are what we have to have in place before we get to Lazarus and the rich man. And, and it seems kind of like, okay, well, it's a bit of a jumble at this point, so stick with me, gang. We're going to get there. Is it gonna come? He's going to draw it together for us. So really quick, the things that we make for ourselves, or the things that we make, uh, use to make ourselves look good are uh, an offensive to God. They stink to him. They're offensive in his face. God's law is about loving people and loving God, and it doesn't change and tossing people aside because you no longer need them is adultery, which remains wrong. That's, that's what he's taught us there, right? Okay, now let's take a look at the parable. He's, he's set us up. He's given us the theology lesson. Now we can go to the parable and figure out what's going on. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate, they laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed from what fell from the rich man's table. 
So Jesus is t- starts telling this parable, and this is a unique parable. This stands out. No other parable does he name a character. But this one he names the poor man, Lazarus. This whole parable is a parable about reversals. The rich man doesn't get a name. He doesn't get a name. He's only ever referred to as the rich man. He is not honored with the truth of having his name mentioned in this parable. The poor man who they carry and they set at his gate, who is covered with sores so that dogs come and lick the sores, he gets a name. He gets the honor, the dignity of being addressed by his name. You are Lazarus. And, and that idea of the dogs coming and licking his sores, we think of dogs as, as pets. As a matter of fact, there's a billboard that says pets are people or children or something. In these days, dogs were nasty. They were scavengers. They were kind of a necessary evil. So for Lazarus to be laying there and the dogs to come and lick, it would be for like us to say, and the rats came up and licked his sores. You know, it's that disgusting. That's what the dog was supposed to look like. So this is the the stark contrast. The rich man feasts sumptuously. Just love that word. It sounds like what it is, sumptuously. He feasted on wonderful foods. And Lazarus is sitting outside the gate with sores all over his body saying, if I could just get what fell off the table, I'd be satisfied. And that's the picture. He just desired that. So he's sitting there and he's waiting and, and, and nothing happens. And eventually the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. So the two of them suddenly die at the same time. And they go to two very different locations. The poor man is carried to Abraham's side. Um, in older English, it would be Abraham's bosom. It, it, he's, he's laying with Abraham in heaven. And the poor man, it says... He died, and he goes to Hades. So really quick, I don't want to theologize too much on this. The doctrine of hell, there's a, there's a handful of different words that talk about this place. Hades is a transliteration. That's the exact words in the Greek is Hades. It was the place of the dead. It was where dead people went. There was also Gehenna. Gehenna was a, a, a garbage pit outside Jerusalem that was constantly burning, and they would take prisoners' bodies and throw them in there. And it was just this unclean, nasty place. And it was representing of hell because it was constantly on fire. It stank really bad. And it had dead bodies and filth. It was, it was nasty. So these are some of the words that are used to explain what hell is. You get the idea this is not just the place where dead people go because the poor man went to Abraham. This guy, this rich man, goes there and he is in anguish. He calls out, Um, Being in Hades, he's being in torment. So this is a bad place. Now, when it comes to the doctrine of hell, these days it's fallen out of favor. It is very uncool to talk about hell because a loving, kind God would never send somebody to hell, right? How unfair. Isn't that a terrible thing? Well, the point of hell is it's supposed to be bad. It's supposed to be scary. Jesus talks about hell quite a bit. And he always presents it as, this is not a place you want to go. He doesn't shy away and say, well, God, a loving God would never do that. What he says is, a just God must do that, and you don't want to go there. So please, don't go to hell. That's what he's saying. That's why he portrays this picture of of the rich man going there and being in torment. It's a bad place. So this morning, I want to admonish you, don't go to hell. Please. Be my friends who welcome me into heaven. 
Let's go dine with, with Abraham. Don't go to hell. It's ugly. It's bad. It hurts. So whatever you can do to avoid that, do that. And I want to show you what you can do to avoid that today. So he's in torment, and he lifts up his eyes, and he sees Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So this is beginning to give us a peek into the afterlife. What happens after, after, heaven and he- or after our life when we're in heaven and hell? He can see. He understands what's going on in Abraham's bosom, in, in, in the place where Abraham is. He can see it from far off, and that's what he wants. He's, he's like, that would be a better place for me. But he can never find repentance here. He never asks, can I join you guys? Abraham, you got a little room up there for me? He understands his situation. He sees it. He sees himself in anguish, and he sees Lazarus in, in pleasure and delight. And so the rich man calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Do you see what the guy's attitude is? He doesn't say, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and bring me into where you are. He wants to order Lazarus around some more. He wants to treat Lazarus as a servant. Abraham, tell Lazarus to come and serve me. He's been laying outside my gate long enough. Now he can do something for me. He can come down here and put a little water on my tongue. His attitude towards towards Lazarus has never changed. His attitude towards people has not budged an inch. He still thinks they're there to serve him. They're there for him to use and to to have his his needs met by them. And so Abraham looks at him and says, child. Abraham does not look at him and say, you are not a Jew. You are not a descendant of Abraham. He acknowledges you are. He says, child. It doesn't count. That's not what's important. He says, remember that you in your lifetime received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he's comforted, and you are in anguish. While you lived, you had the opportunity to avoid the situation you're in, and you refused. So what Jesus is saying in this parable is he says, first of all, don't look to Abraham and say, hey, I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm going to heaven. It's not enough. If you're the kind of person who is a lover of money, if you're the kind of person who sees people as pawns to be used to serve you, this is the future that awaits you. Why? Because you violated the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets tell you love, and you're not loving, you're using. So he says, you don't understand how this works. You had your chance, and you squandered it on feeding your fat face. You blew it. Lazarus suffered. He never had his needs met. And so what we're seeing now in this new situation is that reversal again. Lazarus sat outside your gate suffering, and you did nothing, and now he's in heaven enjoying it. And you sat in your house eating great food, and now you're suffering. The the roles have been reversed. And he says, and besides, between us is a great chasm that's been fixed in order that those who would pass from you to here may not be able and none from here may pass to, uh, none from, um, uh, uh, may cross over to us. So we can't switch places. Now, I don't think what he's getting at is there is a physical gigantic cavern between them. I think what Jesus is painting here, this word picture he's painting is this situation is permanent. You don't get to this point and have the opportunity to switch sides. 
the, the idea that there is a chasm fixed between them that they can yell across to each other is saying, you know what you're missing and nothing can be done about it. Nothing, it's too late. The chasm is fixed. And so the man recognizing his position, he says, well then I beg you father to send to my father's house for I have five brothers so that they may be warned lest they also come to this place of torment. Is this a hopeful sign? He's actually concerned about other people now. Is this something that maybe he's, he's beginning to change his mind? Unfortunately not, <laughs> given the context this is in. Do you remember the dinner party that Jesus had with the Pharisees? And he, he calls a man with dropsy, this inflammatory disease. He calls the man with dropsy forward and he says, heals him. And then he looks at the Pharisees and he says, what are you going to do? I healed on the Sabbath. You guys would go out to your field, and if your son fell in a well, you'd pull him out. If your ox fell in a well, you'd pull him out. But I heal a man with, with this horrible disease on the Sabbath, and you get mad at me. And his point there was, people are more important than oxes. And people are more important than just your family. So this man is looking, and he's not saying, uh, Father Abraham, would you send a ton of people onto the earth to warn everybody to not wind up where I'm at? He's still self-centered. Send some people to my family so they don't wind up what I'm doing. I don't want them here. I don't want them to be in this situation. Please send somebody to tell them. But Abraham said, well, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the law and the prophets that were until John. Right? That's what he said earlier. Let them hear them. In other words, everything that the law and the prophets has to say sets you up to avoid this situation. The law, listen to the law and the prophets. That's the scriptures. They're warning you exactly how to avoid this situation. You have the law and the prophets. Listen to them. So I admonished you earlier, don't go to hell. Do whatever you can to not go to hell, to avoid that situation. Jesus has just told us where we can find the answer to that. It's in the scriptures. Hear the law and the prophets. Understand that you deserve to be there. Understand that the prophets promised one who would come and take the burden of your sin for you. That's the hope that you have. This is how you avoid this burning, horrible place. Since they have the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets have not gone away. They have them. Let them listen to them. And the rich man says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes from the dead, they will repent. Who's, which someone do you think the rich man has in mind here? He is still ordering Lazarus around. He still wants Lazarus to go do his bidding. Father Abraham, send Lazarus back, and he will make everything right. They'll see this guy rise from the dead, and they'll repent. He still is bossing him around. He's still using people. Nothing has changed a whit. And Father Abraham says to him, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, who in this case do you think he's referring to? He's looking forward to Jerusalem. He's looking forward to the crucifixion. And he's looking forward to the fact that he is going to rise from the dead and come and speak to people. And he says, look, you people are so hard-hearted. If you've got the kind of heart that loves material things, wealth, power, position, authority, family, uh, looks, uh, fame, whatever it is, if you've got the kind of heart that puts that forward, that makes that kind of stench before God, when God sends somebody who's risen from the dead, will you change? 
You're still loving stuff. You're still ordering people around. You're still there trying to make people work for you. What Jesus is calling us to here is say, listen to the law and the prophets and look to the resurrection. That's the hope. That's the point of this. So last week we covered a couple of things. What if you have a heart that's like that? What if your heart really does like stuff? Position, power, money, authority, whatever it is. And I covered some things. Here's some, here's some ideas. Go look at those and see if you can't wedge your heart loose. Pray to God. Scream out to God. Lord, I really like stuff and I don't want to. Would you make me better? So that's what's happening here is Jesus, Moses, or Abraham looks to him and says, if they won't hear the law and the prophets, they won't believe a man who's risen from the dead. They're not in a position to make that change. So this morning, will you make that change? I guarantee all of us have some corner of our heart where we have something that we, we prize above what God is offering us. There are places that we will retreat when we're offended or scorned or feel belittled. We'll retreat to those and we'll pull that out of that little box and hold that thing and say, yeah, but I, I've got this. this. I did this thing. The, this person said this about me in fourth grade. And, and this teacher in, in, in ninth grade really liked me. And so we'll, whatever that is, we'll go find that in our, in our little heart box and we'll pull it out and we'll say, see, this validates me. And what Jesus is warning us here is take that thing and offer it up to him. Make it go away. It's terrifying to say, I am not going to have that to retreat to. It's scary. I have gone back to that little golden idol repeatedly and it makes me feel better every time. And then I put it back in my little box and I go on with my life. And Jesus is saying, in the end, is that what you want? Will that satisfy? Will that deliver you from the flames of hell? It won't. And so I want to encourage you, as terrifying as it is to let that thing go and, and to throw it into the flames and say, I don't want it anymore. I'm going to refuse to retreat to that. The alternative is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he will be more sufficient for you than that idol was. He will be more sufficient for you than that, that money that you have. He will be more sufficient for you than the pride you have in your family. He will be more sufficient than all of those things you run to to make you feel better in those times when, when you're belittled or thought little of. That's his picture here. So... This actually goes back to chapter 13 when Jesus was saying, look who's going to be in the kingdom. He says, you're going to look into the kingdom and what you're going to see is Abraham reclining at table. Who else? The prophets. Jacob and Isaac. Lazarus. They'll be reclining with, with Abraham. Who else is going to be there? People from the north, south, east, and west who flee to Jesus Christ in these times. They'll be in there. Those are the ones that you're going to look to. So don't be on the wrong side of the chasm. Enter in. People enter into the, the, um, the kingdom now with force. They press in. He's gone out to the nations and he's pressing the nations. Come into the kingdom. I want my banquet hall filled. Not one blank seat. And so that's what he's inviting us to. That's what he's calling us. Come and trust me. Put your hope in me. And I will deliver, I promise, from the law, from insecurity, from money, from whatever it is that has your heart, I promise I'll deliver you. And you will recline with Abraham in heaven. Let's close in prayer.
Lord, one of the things that you've been teaching us is that if we have faith, we will be saved. How much faith? Faith the size of a mustard seed, a little speck, a period on a page. It's not the degree and the strength of our faith. It's not the purity and perfection of our faith. It's the object of our faith. It's who we put our hope and our trust in. And so, Lord, I pray for all of us that we would set aside those little boxes with idols in them, cast them into the flames. And instead, Lord, that that little tiny speck of hope that we have, that little trust that we have, that little dot of faith, Lord, may we fix it on you and know that that is sufficient. Lord, we long to join Abraham in the kingdom of God reclining at table. Lord, we long to join Lazarus and be at the table reclining with you in heaven, even if it means dogs are licking our sores today. Lord, you're worth it. Your kingdom is enough. Lord, I pray for all of us that we would hear and see and feel and taste and touch and smell the reality that the kingdom of God is better and it's worth it. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Amen.